1: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Before we get going on the first show of 2017, I have some brief notices to dish out. First of all, I'd like to thank all of my supporters who have been donating to me since I set up my Patreon account in the autumn. Your generosity is a continual source of inspiration to me, and I'm so grateful to you all. I'd like to also thank my new monthly donators, Ian, Katie, Zuni, and Catherine. Thanks, you guys. I promise I won't let you down. If you would like to become one of my supporters, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash queensofenglandpodcast, where you can find out all the details. As usual, you can keep in touch with the show on Facebook, Twitter, and the website queensofenglandpodcast.com. And please do leave reviews on iTunes or wherever it is that you subscribe to the show. Let's make this the best-known show about women in history around. Now, last time I said that this would be the final part in the mini-series on Catherine of Aragon, but it quickly became clear as I was writing this that three-episode would not be enough to do her justice. There is just way too much to say about this fascinating woman. Therefore, this episode will actually cover a shockingly low amount of time, just seven years, really, up to 1529, and the convening of the Legatine Court. Then, in the next episode, I will conclude Catherine's story and make a no-doubt-vain attempt to bring the whole thing together. As this is the third part in now a four-part mini-series on Catherine, I would recommend, if you haven't already done so, going back and listening to the previous two shows on her, especially as we had a break for Christmas. And as we all know, mince pies, mulled wine and eggnog are delicious, but they're not all that great for the memory cells. Finally, I just want to talk briefly about how I'm going to tell this story in the next two episodes. As you all know, this is a biographical show, looking at English history through the eyes of its queens. Where this method gets a little tricky to do is when we have two or more queens at the centre of the action at the same time. We had it with Eleanor of Aquitaine and the wives of her sons. We had it with Margaret of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville and Anne Neville. But never before were the fates of two English queens so intertwined as with Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. Telling the story of the last decade or so of Catherine of Aragon's life without mentioning Anne Boleyn at all would be patently absurd. But equally, this episode is about Catherine and not Anne her time will come in due course. Therefore, I'm going to do my best to keep this show focused as much as possible on Catherine, and not spoiling the story of Anne Boleyn, which will come in four weeks. That said, a little bit of repetition is inevitable, so I hope you'll forgive me. As usual, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 39, Catherine of Aragon, Trying a Queen. There are many frames, many prisms through which we can view and understand Catherine of Aragon in this final and most dramatic stage of her life. We have the blameless victim, a woman wronged by the man she loved, and the woman who sought to usurp her. We have the obstinate, immovable object, refusing to compromise in any way with her desperate husband. And we have the canny politician, who stayed ahead of the game almost all the way, using every card in her pocket to protect her own position and that of her daughter, before finally being beaten by Henry changing the rules of the game. These three windows under Catherine, the saintly victim, the obstinate blocker, and the canny operator, have all been favoured at various stages by historians and authors over the years, the latter most recently by Lucy Worsley in her recent TV series Six Wives. This is a very popular view at the moment, seeing Catherine through a very feminist and somewhat exalted lens. However, as you will see, I think that a view of Catherine as the perfect hero in this story is to misunderstand her a little. She was, no doubt, a canny operator, but she was also obstinate to the core, to the extent that she ended up gambling everything and losing everything. Enough build-up? Okay, sure, let's dive in. When we last saw Catherine, it was 1525, and she was entering the perfect storm. Sunlessness and the ending of any prospect of more children, a diplomatic realignment leading to an end of her nephew Charles V's alliance with England, and the arrival of the ultimate rival in Anne Boleyn. Her political power had been crushed by the Pince movement that was Charles' humiliation of Henry after the Battle of Pavia, and the hegemonic power of Wolsey. Who, while having nothing against Catherine, was ruthless in the consolidation of his own power. The weakness of her position was exposed when Charles's envoy, Inigo de Mendoza, an old friend of Catherine's, came to court. He was not permitted at first to meet the queen, and when it was finally permitted, it was with Wolsey present. He later remarked, quote, Though her wishes are strong, her means of carrying them into effect are small. As I said last time, though, While her power at court was severely waning, her popularity with the people never wavered. She was known as the most serene Lady Catherine. She was the hero of Flodden, a friend of the poor. But of course, while this was not nothing, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't matter much. Henry wanted a divorce, and so he got the ball rolling. It all started on the 17th of May, 1527, at Wolsey's residence of York Place in London. There, Henry VIII, the sitting king, was put on trial. The crime? Making an unlawful marriage. Now, it's impossible to know for certain exactly what Henry's motives were at this point. It is entirely possible, indeed I would argue likely, that Henry was truly concerned about being punished by God for making an unlawful marriage with Catherine. His motives may not have been quite so pure as that, as it is undeniable that other factors, Charles V and Anne Boleyn chiefly, played a large part, but it would be a mistake to completely discount the religious motive. Henry was a pious man. He had been named defender of the faith by the Pope and remained a devoted Catholic all his life. Of course, his brand of Catholicism was somewhat extremely unorthodox, as we will see, but he was a believer. At York Place, in the presence of Cardinal Wolsey, who was also Archbishop of York, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the other leading churchmen, Henry consented to have his marriage judged by Ecclesiastical Court. The reason behind it was a passage in Leviticus 2021, which in the Bible version that they had at the time read, Qui duxerit uxorem fratris sui rem facit inlicitam, turpitudinem fratris sui revelavit absque felis erunt. For those of you out there who don't speak faultless Latin, that translates to, He that marrieth his brother's wife doth an unlawful thing, he hath uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be without children. Henry and Catherine had broke divine law by marrying and the trouble they had conceiving children and the complete lack of sons was their punishment. Tied up in this was the notion that Catherine and Arthur had consummated their marriage, that they had sex. If they had not, as Catherine argued, then their marriage was never legal to begin with. But on such technicalities are lawyers' livings earned. The tribunal at York Place took a fortnight to complete, but its outcome was entirely predictable. The marriage had to end. Now, I know what you're all saying. This was in the Bible the whole time. Why, if it was specifically outlawed, was the marriage ever permitted in the first place? Well, if you recall, this was considered an issue at the time, but they had received papal dispensation to marry, remember? Well, okay, so it was made legal by the Pope. Case closed, right? Well, not exactly. Because how powerful was the Pope, really? did he have the divine jurisdiction to countermand a law specifically enumerated in the Bible? That was the legal case at its core. Henry wanted to null his marriage to Catherine by persuading everyone that he was the victim here. It wasn't his fault. Indeed, it wasn't necessarily Catherine's fault. A previous pope had overstepped his authority when he permitted the marriage between him and Catherine. It wasn't valid. It was never valid. This argument, while logical did give Catherine, in turn, her legal case. When Henry disposed of his other wives, he did so decisively, using English law and brutal means in some cases. However, here he was confident, to the point of supreme arrogance, one might say, that he could persuade everyone to come round to his way of thinking. But, like I said, this gave Catherine a window. All she had to do was persuade everyone that the Pope had married them lawfully that the papal bull allowing their marriage was valid. By playing relatively fair, Henry had let his wife into the ring with him, and she was a fearsome opponent. One of the things that made her so fearsome is that she had supporters everywhere. She was in many ways the ultimate spymaster, and so knew everything as soon as it happened. The meeting at York Place was no different. She quickly informed Mendoza, who wrote the following to his master Charles V. Referring to Thomas Wolsey, quote... The good legate, to put the seal on in his iniquities, sick burn there, is working on getting the Queen unmarried, and she is so fearful that she dare not speak to me about it. The King is so bent on this divorce that he has secretly assembled certain bishops and lawyers that they may sign a declaration to the effect that his marriage with the Queen is null and void, on account of her having been his brother's wife. It is therefore to be feared that either the Pope will be induced by some false statement to side against the Queen, or that the cardinal, by virtue of his legatine authority, may take some step fatal to the marriage. I am perfectly aware, though the queen herself had not ventured, and does not venture to speak to me on the subject, that all her hope rests, after God, on your imperial highness. Should the king see that he cannot succeed, he will not run the risk of preliminary steps being known, but should he persist on pursuing the course he has begun, some great popular disturbance must ensue, for the Queen is much beloved in this kingdom. Mendoza here frequently makes the case that Catherine has no part in this, but this was not the case. She and he knew that nothing remained secret for long in the Tudor court, and that letters could easily be intercepted. His protestations to the contrary gave her a way out in the worst-case scenario of this letter being discovered. But make no mistake, this message came from her. The battle lines were being drawn... Henry on one side, Catherine and Charles V on the other. And in the middle was Wolsey, who had to make it all happen. But this was not the only battle going on in Europe. Because to understand this divorce, we have to once again cross the continent to Rome. Just a few weeks after all of this happened, Emperor Charles V's troops entered the eternal city of Rome and sacked it. This came as a great shock, though really by this time Rome must have been one of the most sacked cities of all time. What made this a big deal for England was that the Pope was now the prisoner of Catherine's nephew. Henry's case instantly was made a lot harder to prove. However, this did present Wolsey with an opportunity. As a papal legate and cardinal, he believed that he could rally the church behind him as a sort of regent while the Pope was under Charles's thumb. If he could do that, then he could give his master his annulment. Catherine, however, managed to get word to her nephew about Henry's plan, dispatching one of her household, a man named Felipe, to Spain. It's actually quite an elaborate story of double bluff. Catherine knew that Henry would not let any of her household go to Spain and spill the beans, so she let it be known that she was actually refusing him passage and attempted double bluff. Henry, however, was no fool and saw right through this, but let him go anyway, thinking that he could catch him en route and emerge blameless. A sort of double bluff of the double bluff. A quadruple bluff, if you will. Philippe's, though, managed to slip through Henry's fingers, and so now Charles knew Henry's plan. The Cardinals of Rome did not rally towards the Avignon, and thus began the road to his downfall. Wolsey and Henry at this point seemed positively stunned at Catherine's refusal to play ball. They must have thought that as a dutiful, obedient wife, Catherine would have gone quietly. But they forgot that she was the daughter of Isabella, They forgot that she took her role as queen very seriously, but most importantly, they forgot that Catherine was the proud mother of a daughter who would be made a bastard if this annulment went through. She was never going to go quietly. These two men had grossly underestimated their opponent. The Cardinal's next tactic was to make a low blow, claiming that Catherine was diseased. In a letter written by Wolsey to his envoy in Rome, he made the case that, quote, there are secret reasons which cannot be committed to writing, certain diseases in the Queen defying all remedy, for which, for all other causes, the king will never live with her as a wife. He's talking about her vagina, for all avoidance of doubt. Henry has become repulsed and fearful of Catherine's ladybits, and this wilfully misogynistic argument was an attempt to cast Catherine's evil. Remember, disease means evil, sexual diseases all the more so. This argument continued that Catherine's desperate tactics to prevent this divorce was driven by a kind of mindless lust. What Giles Tremler, in his biography of Catherine, calls "libidinous desire," that most f- dangerous and frightening of female things, controlled and betrayed her, or at least Wolsey claimed. This was the legal brief of a desperate man, and so it proved. His position as the main voice in Henry's ear had been replaced by Anne Boleyn and her supporters. After the failure of the initial onslaught, the debate moved to where the decision over the annulment should take place. Catherine wanted the decision to be taken in Rome by the Pope. Henry wanted it to be made in England by the Pope's representatives. The reasons for why are obvious. In Rome, Charles V could control proceedings. In England, Henry and Wolsey could do it. At home, Catherine was finding that her supporters were slipping away, though, pressured and threatened by the king and Wolsey. And then the big blow came... Pope Clement agreed that a decision would be made in Rome at a legatine court presided over by two papal legates, Wolsey and an Italian cardinal named Lorenzo Campeggio. This must have seemed like a great victory for the king's party, but really, this was the act of a pope desperately stalling for time. His instructions to Campeggio were to stall, 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 play for time until the situation changed either until Charles's hands could be released from his throat and his forces expelled from Rome, or that Henry got bored with Amber Lim and dropped the whole thing. Pope Clement was a religiously, pun intended, cautious and indecisive man, and this was a great expression of this. If Campeggio could find an easy solution amenable to both sides, then he should go for it, but on no account should he take, you know, independent action. The irony is that if Wolsey had just annulled the marriage himself using his authority as a papal legate and asked Clement to rubber stamp it, then he probably would have acquiesced. Charles or no Charles. It's a bit like when your partner asks you what you want for dinner and you become paralysed by the agony of choice. If she just asked you that they wanted to have chicken, you probably would have gone along with it, but now you both sit there in awkward silence and wait for your partner to make your mind up for you while she does the same. What we basically have here is two people playing the most boring game of chicken ever, and no one wanted to grasp that particular bull by the horns. Campeggio arrived in England in October 1528, and was greeted by Wolsey and Henry. Then they gave him what they thought was the solution to this whole sorry mess. Catherine should don the veil. By entering a nunnery, she would allow Henry to marry again, but once again they had all underestimated the resolve of Catherine. When Campeggio came to her, he presented to her Henry's full offer. If she would do this, she could retain her dower and rank, the guardianship of her daughter, and pretty much anything else she wanted. This was a very good offer, and it must be said, probably the best one that she would ever get. It's worth saying at this point that accepting this offer was the sensible play. It protected her and Mary, to an extent, and would mean that everything could be resolved quickly, without it all having to go to the uncertainty of a long, painful trial. Catherine, however, believed herself to be more than just a queen. She was Henry's rightful wife. She believed it with every fibre of her being, and so she refused. Campeggio could not believe his ears. Clearly he had not encountered many powerful, strong women before. According to a dispatch by the Cardinal, she raved her right of secrecy, making this direct appeal to the Pope. Quote, First, she affirmed on her conscience that from her marriage with Prince Arthur on the 14th of November to his death on the 2nd of April,
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: She had not slept in the same bed with him more than seven nights, and that she remained as intact and uncorrupted as the day she left her mother's womb. Secondly, after I had exhorted her at great length to remove all these difficulties and to content herself with making a profession of chastity, setting before her all the reasons which could be urged on that head, she assured me that she would never comply, that she intended to live and die in the state of matrimony to which God had called her, that she would always remain of that opinion, and that she would never change it. She then, once again, managed to outwit her husband in the case of the missing papal bull. My name of it, I should add. Everyone knew that possession of the original papal bull, issued by the Pope Julius, that permitted the marriage between Catherine and Henry in the first place, was crucial. A copy had been presented in Rome, but Henry suspected, conveniently enough, that it was a forgery, and so demanded the original. The man who had it, conveniently enough, was Charles V, who had inherited it along with the Spanish crown. Catherine agreed to Henry's suggestion that a man should be sent to Spain to obtain the ball, and so Henry wrote a letter, Catherine signed off on it, and the man who was sent, Thomas Abel, dutifully delivered it to the Spanish court, but then, sensationally, told the Emperor that his mistress had told him that she wished Charles to ignore the letter. The original bull must stay in Spain. If we make a pause at this point, before we delve into the depths of the court case that is about to happen, I would like to talk briefly about how weird this all was. We take it for granted that Henry wanted this divorce, that this was a thing that happened, but a queen standing up to a king in this manner is pretty much unprecedented. When it had occurred before in English history, it was usually because the king was weak and pretty useless. But Henry VIII was no Edward II or Richard II. The exception to this was, of course, Eleanor of Aquitaine with Henry II, but she had powerful sons on her side when she challenged her husband, not to mention the power of the Duchy of Aquitaine. While Catherine had powerful allies, most of them were on the continent and little immediate help. Her domestic allies, while dedicated, were few – We mustn't underestimate the supreme courage it took her to challenge the will of her husband. What must have buoyed her, though, was her support amongst the masses. In November 1528, she walked across the raised gallery between her residence and Blackfriars before a great crowd. They cheered her, shouting words of encouragement. These were Henry's subjects offering public support to a woman he claimed was a liar. After this, he banned anyone from gathering again near that gallery and blamed Catherine for attempting to incite rebellion, but the damage was done. Before the opening of the court case, then, Henry went on a public relations campaign to bring the people round to his side. According to the chronicler Edward Hall, he gathered together all the important people of London and gave them his side of the story. He loved Catherine. He wished above anything else that his marriage to her were legal. Talking about his marriage, quote, There was never a thing more pleasant nor acceptable to me in my life, he said. Going on to say that, quote, I assure you all, besides her noble parentage, she is a woman of most gentleness, of most humility and buxomness. So what was the reaction of the Londoners to this? Hall writes, quote, It was a strange sight. Some sighed and said nothing. Others were sorry to hear the king so troubled in his conscience. Others that favoured the queen were much sorrowed that this matter was now opened. The king had come down from his ivory tower to talk to some of his most important subjects man to man, and their response was far from supportive. Catherine was also working very hard on the Pope, writing letters to him that were reportedly so eloquent they would, quote, make rocks crack. Her nephew Charles was also marching once again towards Italy, en route to crushing another French army. He would once again enter Rome as a conqueror, and show that pesky Pope who was boss. Clement, I think, was in his heart on Henry's side. He saw the danger to the Catholic Church in this early part of the Age of Reformation of going against a monarch on an issue like this. Were it not for Catherine's pleas and Charles' army breathing down his neck, he may have acquiesced. This is why it was so crucial for Catherine to keep up the pressure from her end and implore Charles to do the same. And this she did with aplomb. Okay, so the time had come for the Trial of the Century... It was the 31st of May 1529, and Campeggio was doing a cracking job of slowing everything down. He'd been in England for about nine months now, and had achieved absolutely nothing. But the legal business could not be avoided for any longer. The case would be heard at Blackfriars, and the early weeks were really concerned with admin and were conducted behind closed doors. The public hearings would take place in mid-June. I really am not exaggerating when I call it the trial of the century. Indeed, if anything, I'm downplaying it according to one observer quote this was the strangest and newest sight device that ever was read or heard of in any history or chronicle in any region that a king and queen should appear in court like common persons catherine's defense would be led by two churchmen bishop john fisher of rochester and bishop john clark of bath and wells these two men were no hacks they were both highly experienced legal and court operators who knew what they were doing They saw the task as very simple. Henry must not be permitted to descend into sin by annulling a perfectly good and legal marriage. The court had no right to try this case. It must be done in Rome. Fisher, indeed, would emerge as Catherine's greatest champion. Though he was, of course, deeply loyal to the Queen, his main motivation seems to have been the preservation of the church. He was a Cato-like figure, someone whiter than white, who believed in old-fashioned religious virtue. If Henry were to be allowed to divorce his wife, then it would just be the thin end of the wedge. The big day of the trial came on the 28th of June, when the royal couple were due to give evidence. Now there are multiple accounts of this court, all of them differing in some detail or another, some short and sweet, some longer and more floral. I will be quoting here from George Cavendish's Life of Woolsey, for no other reason than I prefer longer, and floral. Of course, this needs to be taken with a pinch of salt, but it doesn't really differ all that much from other records. First, Henry spoke. He gave the same argument that he had been making for some years now. He could no longer live in sin. For the sake of the king's immortal soul, he had to be released from this illegal and immoral marriage. Then a town crier, quote, "'Called also the queen by the name of Catherine, Queen of England, "'come into the court,' who made no answer to the same, "'but rose up incontinent out of her chair, whereas she sat.' and because she could not come directly to the king for the distance which severed them, she took pain to go unto the king, kneeling down at his feet. So here we have the classic image of the queen in supplication to her husband. Normally, this would be arranged for the king in advance, in order that he might appear magnanimous. Catherine, though, was using this medieval custom against him. Though she was before the court presided over by the cardinals, Catherine would direct her pleas to her husband directly, and use every trick in her playbook. Cavendish continues quote, in the sight of all the court and assembly to whom she said in broken English, as followeth Sir, quoth she, "I beseech you for all the loves that hath been between us, and for the love of God, let me have justice and right. Take of me some pity and compassion, for I am a poor woman and a stranger born out of your dominion. I have here no assured friend, and have much less indifferent counsel." I flee to you as the head of justice within the realm. Alas, sir, wherein I have offended you, of what occasion of displeasure? Have I designed against your will and pleasure, intending, as I perceive, to put me from you? I take God and all the world to witness that I have been to you a true, humble, and obedient wife, ever conformable to your will and pleasure, but never said or did anything to the contrary thereof, "'being always well-pleased and contented with all things, "'wherein you had any delight or dalliance, "'whether it be in little or much. "'I never grudged in word or countenance "'or showed a visage or spark of discontentment. "'I loved all those whom you loved, only for your sake, "'whether I had cause or no, "'and whether they were my friend or my enemy. "'These twenty years I have been your true wife or more, "'and by me you have had diverse children.' although I have pleased God to call them out of this world, which have been no fault in me. Okay, so a few things here. Though she is making a powerful statement of her own agency here, she is simultaneously presenting herself as the weak and feeble woman, someone to be pitied, not bullied. This was very clever. No one liked bossy, haughty women telling good, God-fearing Englishmen what to do. But a damsel in distress? Well, that was a different thing altogether. She implores Henry to think of the children, stating that she had given him many kids, that it was not her fault that so many of them had perished. She was a good wife, the perfect wife. By saying that she loved all his friends, even those that were her enemies, she is making here a dig at Wolsey, whom she really did not like, thinking him as much the snake in the grass as Anne Boleyn. It was a strong start. She then goes on to address the issue of the consummation of her first marriage. Quote, And when you had me at first, I take God to be my judge. I was a true maid without touch of man. And whether it be true or no, I put it to your conscience. If there be any just cause by the law that you can allege against me, either of dishonesty or of any other impediment to banish and put me from you, I am well content to depart to my great shame and dishonor. And if there be none, then I most lowly beseech you to let me remain in my former estate and receive justice at your hands." The king your father was in the time of his reign of such estimation throughout the world for his excellent wisdom that he was accounted in call of men the second Solomon. And my father, Ferdinand, king of Spain, who was esteemed to be one of the wittiest princes that reigned in Spain many years before, were both wise and excellent kings in wisdom and princely behaviour. It is not therefore to be doubted, but that they elected and gathered as wise counsellors about them as their high discretions was thought meet." Also, as me seemeth, there was in those days as wise, as well-learned men, and men of as good judgment as be at this present in both realms, who thought the marriage between you and me good and lawful. So here we have Catherine's protestations that she was a virgin when she married Arthur. She brings up the fact that no one has presented any proof that they had sex, whereas she has the judgment of Henry Seventh and her father Ferdinand, as well as all their wise and clever advisers. It was Henry's case to prove, not hers. She then goes for her grand finale. Therefore it is a wonder to hear what new inventions are invented against me, and cause me to stand to the order and judgment of this new court, wherein you may do me much wrong. If you intend any cruelty, if you may condemn me for lack of sufficient answer, having no indifferent counsel but as be assigned me, with whose wisdom and learning I am not acquainted." You must consider that they cannot be indifferent counsellors for my part, which be your subjects, and taken out of your counsel before, wherein they be made privy, and dare not for your displeasure disobey your will and intent, being once been made privy thereunto. Therefore I must humbly require you, in the name of charity, and for the love of God, who is the just judge, to spare me the extremity of this new court. And if you will not extend to me so much indifferent favour, "'Your pleasure then be fulfilled, and to God I commit my cause.'" She wasn't holding back, was she? So here she states quite plainly that she cannot expect to get a fair trial before this court. They were biased simply by being the subjects of the king. Even her own lawyers were suspect for the same reason. If Henry did not listen to her and the case went his way, then she would take her cause to God, who would of course prove her right, in effect making her a martyr. After playing the God card, she was almost done but of course a great speech is nothing without a strong accent. And with that she rose up, making a low curtsy to the king, and so departed from thence. Many supposed that she would have resorted again to her former place, but she took her way straight out of the house, leaning, as she was wont always to do, upon the arm of her great receiver, called Master Griffith. And the king, being advertised of her departure, commanded the cry to call her again, who called her by the name of Catherine, Queen of England, come into the court. With that, quoth Master Griffith, Madam, you are called again. On on, quoth she, it maketh no matter, for it is no indifferent court for me. Therefore I will not tarry. Go on your ways. And thus she departed out of that court without any farther answer at that time or at any other, nor would ever appear at any other court after. Well, you can imagine the effect this would have had on the court. Catherine had once again taken on her husband and won a victory. Beforehand, it was not even certain that she would have appeared at all at this hearing. If she had, it was expected that she would have remained largely silent and leave her defence to her lawyers. But clearly, through a combination of supreme self-confidence about the loyalties of those lawyers, Catherine had spoken powerfully and eloquently in her own defence. And she had caused a right stir. Indeed, the court had to be suspended for the day, while Henry summoned his advisers to work out what on earth they were going to do next. As Scavenger said, Catherine would never come back to the court, but the proceedings continued without her. She was declared to be in contempt of court, but she had said her piece, she did not recognise the right of the court to try her, and so she would not return. Even without the Queen present, things still did not go well for Henry. He seems to have been supremely confident throughout all of this that he was not only in the right, but that all the great and good of the kingdom were on his side. This, though, was proven not to be the case when he brandished before the court a document that claimed that all the bishops of the kingdom agreed that this matter deserved to go to trial. But then Bishop Fisher stood up boldly and said that he had agreed to no such thing. When Henry pointed to his seal on that document that suggested the contrary, Fisher angrily exclaimed that it was a forgery. A meek Archbishop of Canterbury then confirmed this, descending the trial even further into farce. When Henry presented a parade of witnesses that claimed to be able to prove that Catherine had consummated her marriage with Arthur, from the Earl of Shrewsbury and Marquis of Dorset, to one of Arthur's old grooms, Fisher was belligerent. Quote, Ego nosco veritatem. I know the truth. When asked to explain why, he said, quote, what therefore God had joined together, let no man put asunder. And forasmuch as this marriage was made and joined by God to a good intent, I say that I know the truth, which is that it cannot be broken or loosed by the power of man. It was another impressive performance by Fisher, and even Campeggio was impressed. Quote, Rochester made his appearance to say, affirm, and with forcible reasons demonstrate to them that this marriage of the king and queen can be dissolved by no power human or divine. Fisher then went further, claiming that he was willing to lay down his life for this cause, quoting John the Baptist, who said that there was no more noble cause to die for than the cause of marriage. Here, Fisher is really straying into literally treacherous territory. By comparing himself to John the Baptist, then he was implicitly comparing Henry to the man who killed him, King Herod, and that was not a comparison that Henry would have enjoyed. Between them, Catherine and Bishop Fisher had raised the stakes here both who declared themselves willing to die for their cause, to become martyrs. The hopes that everyone had for a quick and easy end to this madness were dashed once again. So I'm going to leave Catherine here for this week, in one of her finest hours. Next time, we will, for real this time, finish the story of Catherine of Aragon, and discuss her final years. Sadly, this impassioned speech to the Legatine Court would be her last high, as Henry went to extraordinary lengths to obtain his divorce and marry the woman of his dreams.